Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Recorded live. I got for you, Meehan. We're using we're using the Sex Pistols here as our bump music, and uh, are any of those guys still alive? Do you know? Is this is this is this, is this too far before your time? Or no, I mean I, I'm aware that I mean obviously Sid's dead, uh, but uh, I believe Johnny Rotten is still somewhere angry about something. So it's probably something that doesn't necessarily directly pertain to him, but I'm sure he's somewhere in angry. And, and yes, I do believe he's alive. Uh, there's somebody else in that band that is dead, though, other than Sid. I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure Steve Jones is dead, the guitarist. Um, yeah. Okay. Well, that that question kind of sets the theme for this episode of the Blastcast with J.W. and Meehan. Um, today's episode is another one of our feature pieces on tales of depression and sorrow which means we're going to talk about what it's like to be a long-suffering fan of a team and why do the sex pistols have anything to do with that because we're talking about stuff that a lot of people under the age of 30 never even heard of and what we're going to do with depression and sorrow today is we're going to turn the tables mr meehan is actually going to put me on the hot seat and he's going to grill me about uh, the the trauma that I've lived through uh, with over 40 years of being a fan of the Philadelphia Eagles. So um, with that, I am going to throw the keys of this blast cast over to Mr. Meehan while I strap on the electrodes for the hot seat treatment. Okay, well, that's what I want to hear. Um, a lot of my fantasies have a lot to do with your nipples being hooked up to electrodes just in general. Uh, and 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 then that has nothing to do with being a Giants fan either, does it? This is just something. No, it's... no, of course not. Of course not. That's the sound of me lying. Anyway, um, <laughs> what I basically want to know, uh, we're gonna we're gonna go through everything. Uh, we're both NFC East team fans, uh, and like John said, with that goes a lot of this depression and sorrow. There's a lot of very hard luck stories that you know. You're much older than I am, so, you know, you, you definitely have more of those stories that, that, you know, that aren't just specific, specifically newer Super Bowl era. So how far does this go back? When, when did you wake up and say, oh, oh, I'm an Eagles fan now? What moment, in what year, and for how long have you been a fan of the Philadelphia Eagles? 
Well, to, to be fair, to, I, you made the comment that I'm much older than you, and for purposes of clarity, I'll just tell everybody, you're somewhere in your 30s, and I'm somewhere in my late 200s. I mean, I I became a sports fan. I became a sports fan because before Abner Doubleday invented baseball, him and I went to summer camp together, which I actually think was some sort of War of 1812 kind of thing. I I, I don't remember. I just remember Brits and guns and lots of stuff like that. But, but to your question, um, when did I become a fan of the Philadelphia Eagles? I mean, I can go, like I said, I'm an old man. I can go all the way back. To Roman Gabriel as the starting quarterback, and for those of you that don't know, that would be about 1973. Um, and how I got to be um, a fan of the Eagles is that my dad was in the Air Force, and we were in California, but all of my family was originally from from Philadelphia, and so. In the in the early '70s, in the pre-cable TV world, you know, NFL coverage was all about whatever was regional and wherever you were you saw the home team i mean it's a lot like it is now but there was no sunday ticket there was no um you know there was no thursday night football there was no sunday night football monday night football was still in its infancy um so if you were in philadelphia you saw the eagles and if you were in los angeles you saw the rams and to be honest, there was nothing entertaining that I ever saw about about the Rams, except they had this assistant coach named Dick Vermeil, and a lot of you know who he is. You know, he won won a Super Bowl with the Rams back in 2000. But what a lot of you don't know about Dick Vermeil is that he was the first ever special teams coach in the NFL, and he coached for the Rams under George Allen. If you watch the old NFL films, things about coaches. Yeah, George Allen is the guy that looks just like Ronald Reagan. You know who I'm talking about? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, anyway, to try and make a long story short, uh, Vermeil took the head coaching job at UCLA, so now we see him all the time when I'm a kid in Los Angeles. UCLA had sucked for 10 years, and he takes them to uh, what was then the Pac-8. He takes them to a championship and then leads them to an upset win uh, over Ohio State, and I hated Ohio State because, you know, um, Woody Hayes, their their legendary coach that got fired a couple of years after this for slugging a Clemson linebacker in the face, um, he just he just reminded me of my old man neighbor. I had this old man neighbor that any time a you know ball landed in his yard, he'd confiscate it, or your Nerf football, he'd cut it up, shit like that. He looked just like Woody Hayes, so. I hated him, so Vermeil beats the guy that looks like the neighbor I hate, and then he takes the job with the Eagles in '76, and that that pretty much uh, Dick Vermeil pretty much cemented my Eagle fandom at that point. Really? Now, do you still like Dick Vermeil? I mean, do you have what's your opinion of of him in general? And I know we'll get into that here in a little bit, but overall, well. You know, you gotta you gotta understand something. If you're an old school Philadelphia Eagles fan, Dick Vermeil's got a real special place in your heart because, you know, the Eagles were terrible for so long. I mean, they they won the NFL championship. I mean, this is pre Super Bowl. They won the NFL championship in 1960, and then after that, they really fell off the face of the earth until really. The miracle of the Meadowlands was really the the reawakening of that franchise. So they were literally dormant for 20 years, and Dick Vermeil was the guy that changed that. So, 
you know, to this day, saying something bad about Dick Vermeil around me is, is, is just that those them's fighting words. So yeah, I totally totally understand. Uh, other other than the fact that it was regional at the time, what made you want to continue to be a fan of the Eagles? What really made you want to keep getting into it and eventually enjoy the rest of football? Well, this is a, this is a lot of. I didn't know yet who I really liked, but I knew who I really didn't. And unlike a lot of Eagles fans, I never really had any hatred of the Giants because in the early 70s, both the Eagles and the Giants were were pretty terrible. So there was no need to bother with them, and there was no need to bother with the you know pre-Joe Gibbs era Redskins because they were mediocre at best. But I knew, I knew deep down in my heart, I did not like the Dallas Cowboys. Uh, and yeah. and Phil, Philadelphia Eagles fans seemed like they really didn't like the Cowboys either. So I identified with that. And like I said, I had no, I had no love of the Rams either, which was the team I was actually seeing as a kid uh, in California. Um, and so when Vermeil left UCLA and he made me a fan of them and, and went east to Philadelphia – that's that's where where it all got started. But you know, to answer your question, it was a lot of you know, hating the Dallas Cowboys snapped a lot of stuff into place. Yeah, I mean that. Yeah, that sentence sums up a lot of pretty much every one of my life beliefs. But uh, <laughs> um, so I have to ask, who is your all-time favorite player from the Eagles going? To, and is it a pre-Super Bowl play? Era player? Uh, no. I mean, I can't. I can't say that it's a pre-Super Bowl era player because while I am old, I didn't see a lot of those guys. Um, so it would really have to be the guys that I saw playing and, and guys that I saw as a kid. And and again, we're we're really we're really stuck in that Vermeil era from you know. 76 to 82 because there were so many so many great players on that eagle team I'll, I'll just start naming guys and then you know we'll, we'll we'll whittle it down from there i mean you know i'd start with you know wilbert montgomery harold carmichael uh ron jaworski and herman edwards uh later on you can talk some randall cunningham uh, this list isn't going to be complete without Reggie White. Um, but if you look at those guys I just mentioned, what, I got five, six guys there. Um, I think out of all the guys I just mentioned, Wilbert Montgomery is the only one who hasn't done something that really, you know, just hurt my heart yet. I mean, uh, Harold Carmichael. I mean, watching Harold Carmichael play the last year of his career in a Cowboys uniform was was tough to take. I mean, I, I got it. He needed one last payday. The Cowboys were willing to give it to him, and the Eagles weren't because by the time we get to the late the late or the mid-'80s, Harold Carmichael is, is pretty much used up. Uh, Reggie White leaving for the Packers, uh, that kind of signified the end of the, that Buddy Ryan, that Buddy Ryan era that was, that was a lot of fun. Um, Ron Jaworski and Herman Edwards, two of my favorite players ever, uh, and then went to ESPN and became complete dicktards. Uh, just, I can't listen to either one of them. I see them on ESPN, I have to change the channel, and I have to just flash my brain back to 1979 when I loved both of those guys. 
that leaves Wilbert Montgomery. And, you know, for a lot of people that didn't pay attention to football in the late 70s, there's a period when O.J. Simpson is, his knees are gone, and before we get to the Eric Dickersons and some of the guys that were superstars in the 80s, I mean, I mean, he was not in the Walter Payton class, but there was definitely a time when Wilbert Montgomery was one of the one of the best running backs in the league. Um, I know he's done something that would piss you off, though. I know you have a serious love of the Baltimore Ravens right now. He's their running backs coach, so that's kind of fitting. Uh, <laughs> I, I had to throw, I, I I had to throw you a bone. No, uh, it's funny you mentioned Harold Carmichael because I I did have him written down on the paper in front of me, and, and I, I put Slash Lance Allworth next to him because I thought, like, Harold was one of those, like, was one of the first guys who was, who was very, very lanky. He, he could make some awkward catches uh, in the same way that Allworth could. Um, but, uh, yeah, no, I, I, I would probably say out of everybody, it would probably be Harold Carmichael on my end that, what I want to know is who is your brother-in-law player, and this means the guy that you hated, but you tolerated him because he was on your team. And why did you pick them? And do you have any good stories about why you picked them? Well, before before I answer that, I just want to say one thing about Harold Carmichael really quick, and that is, you know, Harold Carmichael. The best way to describe him is that, you know, first of all, the guy was six ten and could outrun anybody. It, he was a lot like the precursor of the Calvin Johnsons, just a guy that was bigger and faster than anybody else. And he was the whole reason why Ron Jaworski was such a great red zone quarterback, because all Ron had to do was throw the ball at the crossbar, and nobody else was going to get it except Carmichael. And, you know, he was, he was an unstoppable weapon before wide receivers became valued as weapons. But uh, back to your question about the brother-in-law player. The guy that that was on my team and I and should have hated. I mean, there's there's a couple of guys that you I, you, you said you've got a, a piece of paper with some names on it. I, I, I wonder how many you have. I'll, I'll mention some guys. Um, like you would think it would be Bill Romanowski. I hated that guy from day one. I hated him at Boston College, but I never quit hating him. Even when he came to the Eagles right out of college, I hated him. And when he left for San Francisco, I still hated him. And then when he went to Denver, I really hated him. So he doesn't qualify because I never – if he actually were my brother-in-law, he'd be eating Thanksgiving dinner out in the tool shed. Fuck him. I wouldn't let him in my house. Uh, another guy that might be on your piece of paper is Terrell Owens. Uh, you know, that guy drove me nuts. But he wasn't there long enough to matter. Um Donovan McNabb. There's a lot of people who think I would pick Donovan McNabb because he's just such an obvious choice. Philadelphia fans just never warmed up to him because he was genuinely mediocre. I got to say the winner here is is Chris fucking Carter. I hated the guy coming out of Ohio State, comes to Philadelphia, he puts up some decent numbers, but it was pretty clear by, you know, the end of year two, getting into year three, that something was wrong with this guy. And finally, Buddy Ryan had enough of him and cut him with that that famous speech where you know all this guy does is catch touchdowns. And uh, he goes to Minnesota, another team I don't have any real affinity for, and turns himself into a Hall of Famer. And um, yeah, it's got to be Chris Carter. That's it. Yeah, I always thought I, Carter pissed me off more than just the fact that he was in an Eagles uniform. I just genuinely felt 
I genuinely felt that he was truly a dick. Did did you kind of get that feeling? I mean, everything about him just reeked of dickishness. Oh yeah, and then and then when he went to the Vikings. You know, after he went to the Vikings, I had a period where I lived in Minnesota, and I got to see this jerk-off every week, post-game press conferences, local sports talk radio. Oh, he exuded dick. You know, and, and every time he opened his mouth, every time I saw him in a Viking uniform, I said, I don't care if this guy catches 50 touchdowns a season. I'm so glad he's not an eagle. Fuck him. You know, I just couldn't stand him. And and. The the Viking fans that love this guy, really, you know, they're almost like, you know, Jews for Hitler. I, I, because Chris Carter was one of the biggest advocates of that team leaving Minnesota when they were still arguing in the 90s about building a stadium. And you know, Viking fans choose to forget that. In Philadelphia, if you'd have said, yeah, let's move this team, they'd have come out and showered him with batteries. So, fuck Chris Carter. Yeah, I mean, he would have been dead if he tried to pull that. In, in, in such a weak city to, to kind of try to pull that kind of a move, you know, it was just like, well, it's Minneapolis, so I can kind of get away with it. You know what I mean? Like, there's there's that kind of feeling to it. Uh, I mean, Absolutely. In, in, in one of the, you know, like, it's like you said, he wouldn't do it in Philadelphia, but, you know, if he tried to pull that, and you know, if he was in Los Angeles when they were having talks of moving either one of those teams away, like no, it, it, they wouldn't even even be batteries. It would just be rocks, and they would just, <laughs> everybody would just have a line of socks full of rocks, dude, and they would have just beaten the shit out of him. So what I want to know here again is, uh, who, which player would you consider to be the bad but hot girlfriend player? Meaning. You know, this is the guy that you loved, that you just knew it was all bad news for your team. And why is it that you would select that person? Oh, I yeah, I I used that reference telling a story on another podcast a while ago. And when it comes to being a fan of the Eagles, there's just there's just one choice here, and I know this is a name as a Giants fan that's going to make you spew bile, but it's Deshaun Jackson. Um, I just, I, you know, I don't do hot dogs. And, and first of all, let me, let me be honest. I'm an old-school football guy, so I don't value wide receivers to begin with. I, I think any team in this league that pays big money to a wide receiver is just wasting it because – there's like three guys in the world that are worth their weight in anything, and Calvin Johnson is two of them. And so yeah. when you have when you have a team that you know who um, who's the guy the Lions just gave all kinds of fucking money to the guy from the the Seahawks, the Golden Tate. Yeah, it doesn't it doesn't matter. But they gave this guy like thirty million dollars. It's like why don't you just take that money, take it out in your driveway, set it on fire because. You're going you're gonna to realize in three years, you know, midway into that contract, that this guy ain't worth anything what you paid him. Um, I have a theory. And, and when it comes to offensive football, the farther away you are from the ball at the snap, the less important you are. Because if you go back and you look at Super Bowl winning teams, there's all kinds of Super Bowl winning teams that won without big-name wide receivers. But there ain't one that won without a good offensive line and, and a decent quarterback. So wide receivers are tertiary because in order for a wide receiver to be worth anything, 
team's got to have an offensive lineman that can keep or they can keep a quarterback on their feet. They got to have a quarterback on his feet that can actually get the ball to the receiver. So when you have a guy like Deshaun Jackson that just runs around the field and hot dogs his ass off, why the fuck do I need that? I don't need to be bothered with that. Screw him too. Yeah, you know what bothers me about Deshaun Jackson? It, it, you know, you talk about uh, guys taking plays off or people who supposedly oh. take plays off. Here's the deal with him. They had, before he threw a shift fit, an offense that, that was designed to get him to, to get him the ball, let's say anywhere from six to eight times that were supposed to be major gains on those plays, okay? Yep. He knew exactly where those plays were in the overall scope of things. And on the, on, and on the I won't even say taking plays off. I'll just straight up say it. He took drives off. If he knew he wasn't getting the ball, he would just kind of waddle out there and, like, not sell it. And he just looked kind of like the shrimpish dude that's out there <laughs> not selling it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, it, and I'm not picking on him because he's small, but, and, you know, I would probably have a lot more respect for him if he did you know, hit guys at the line and, and, like, really, you know, like, try to make contact. But that's not the type of guy he is, and the type of guy he is has been created by a lot of the receivers who came before him and have showed the world that, like, this is the hot dog position. This is what you want to be if you, like, if you just want to wipe your cock on things. You know, that's, <laughs> that's, that's the position. Young kids growing up that are starting in football, you know, they would much rather have that than the responsibility of being a quarterback, even if they knew they were a great athlete. So, as you can imagine, you know, the NFL is going to look going to look like a bunch of twats in about twelve years. So, well, and you know, you, you bring up a really good point because you know, look at look at the guys that put up the huge numbers in what I like to call the fantasy football era in terms of wide receivers. You know, guys like Randy Moss, guys like Terrell Owens, you know, that half a season that Kenny Britt looked like he was going to gonna jump into into that realm and pretty much he's just going to be, you know, a, a draft pick on somebody's prison fantasy team. Uh, the list goes on. Deshaun Jackson for a while. Of course, you know, him now, he's he ended up with the Redskins. He, he, I, I'm pretty sure that's right. If it's not, I don't care. He he went somewhere where he's not going to matter. Um, but you're absolutely right. You know, you, we've got these guys that are a bunch of prima donnas, and when they don't get the ball, they don't do anything. And I got I got no use for that. I just I like I said, I'm an old school guy. I don't need to see that. You know, fuck them. You know, leave them leave them on a deserted island for for five years with an infected ape. You know, that's that's what they deserve. Screw them. Move on. Yeah, and I, I also want to add here. You know, the question was bad but hot girlfriend. The thing about the term term sexy pick is half-ass pick. You know, like that only lasts for so long, you know, being able to say like, oh, we got this guy and that's, you know, that's the thing. So I... I, I don't know. I, I I do understand. I mean, I understand why the Redskins ended up with him. I mean, I, I get it, uh, but it's more for lack of other options than I, – I guarantee you this. I I bet they would much rather have Andre Johnson right now. That's just my opinion. I know he's older, but that's just my opinion. 
Well, it, it, it's oh. funny. It's funny. Wait a minute. I want to. I want to hit on something there. It's funny that you mentioned the Redskins because as fans of teams in the NFC East, you're a Giants fan. I'm an Eagles fan, obviously. The Redskins are so fun to watch because they do this every year. They go out and they buy that quote unquote hot girlfriend, and it never works. I mean, go back and look at their history of free agent signings and look at how many guys were the quote-unquote hot girlfriends that they blew so much money on, and they haven't done dick with any of them. I can't think of one single... Man, let's think about that for, for a second, though. How many successful signings have they had like that? Because I'm, I'm going through it, and I'm like, no, no. I, yeah. I really can't think they had any. That's my whole point. I mean, and look at how much money they spent doing it. You know, yeah. yeah. So they bought they, a lot of draft picks doing that as well. So well, you know, oh yeah, definitely for sure. So out of all the years of being able to lift yourself up from the mucky muck, as Tenacious D would say, <laughs> um, okay. what is your personal highlight moment? As a fan, what's what's the one thing uh, in all of the years that you can remember not shitting yourself that you <laughs> saw that, that made it either worth it or seem worth it? Well, well, first of all, at my age, just not shitting myself on a daily basis is is slowly going from a minor to a major victory on a, <laughs> on a daily basis. Um. As, as an old Eagle fan and you as a Giant fan, you would think that the thing I'm going to say here is the miracle of the Meadowlands. And, and I'm not going to say that. I mean, granted, that, that play, that game, was a watershed moment in the history of the Eagles. Like I said, it was the moment where the Vermeil era came alive, and that team knew they could win, and that team knew they could make the playoffs, and you know everything started happening after that. But for me, the high watermark comes a couple of years later when it was the uh, the 1980 um, NFC Championship game. The game, you know, the, the Eagles finally win that division away from the Cowboys. And the Eagles go into the playoffs, and they just crush the Vikings. And so Dallas, the goddamn Dallas Cowboys, have to come to Philadelphia in January and win if they want to go to the Super Bowl. And... The Eagles fans have been waiting decades for this moment, and we finally get it. We get we get the Cowboys out there on our home turf. Wilbert Montgomery goes crazy, has like almost 200 yards rushing. The Philly defense just manhandled that potent Cowboy offense. Remember, the Cowboy offense at that time was, you know, Tony Dorsett and Tony Hill and you know, uh, God, I can't even remember the other receivers, but they were really good. They had that awesome offensive line, and they couldn't do anything. In fact, I mean, Wilbert Montgomery had more all-purpose yards in that game than the entire Dallas team. Uh, Royal Young, his forced fumble on, on Tony Dorsett that just set the table for the second half of that game where you knew the Cowboys had no chance. You know, and and... Being an Eagle fan, you also take the good with the bad because out of all the good things that I just mentioned and how they won that game 20-7 to and just really were more dominant than the score indicates, there were warning signs for what was to come because 
Ron Jaworski, I mean, he sucked in that game. Went nine for 29, two picks. You know, we should have seen what was coming because of that, but it was it was it was so awesome to just beat the shit out of the Dallas Cowboys on that horrible carpet at Veterans Stadium that you know, nobody nobody saw the warning signs. So that, that's that's the highlight. Yeah, okay, so uh, let's talk about the whole, you know, next week thing. Uh, would you say Super Bowl fifteen is your personal low light then, or is there another moment that you would think would be the low light? Well, let me preface that by saying that that NFC championship win would mark the last Philadelphia Eagle playoff victory for about 12 years. I don't think they won another playoff game until until New Orleans in 92, I want to say. But that started a long, long drought. And, yeah, January, January 25th, 1981, for Philadelphia Eagle fans, this, this is a date that lives in infamy. I mean, seriously, if you're an Eagle fan, January 25th, 1981 is right up there with December 7th, or you know the day the Challenger blew up. Um, it's it, it's a date you're never going to forget because, like I said, it was such a triumphant march to get there, and you're facing an Oakland Raider team that was that was the first wild card team to make it to a Super Bowl. If, if you back in those days, you had three divisions in each conference, and you had one wild card. And that wild card team, the way it was set up, never ever won because they had to play on the road all the time. And for Oakland, they have to go on the road, and they had to go on the road to some shitty places. And they just kept winning and kept winning and kept winning. And they get to the Super Bowl, and they're they're a huge underdog because I mean Philadelphia on paper was just so much a better team. And then you sat back. And you watched Ron Jaworski just literally throw that game away. I mean, he throws three fucking interceptions to the same guy. Some backup linebacker named Rod Martin, who ends up being the Super Bowl MVP, just because Ron Jaworski can't figure out that throwing the ball out to the flat, trying to get the ball to Montgomery, was not going to work. And he kept doing it, and kept doing it, and kept doing it. And the worst part was, is it not even, is it the three interceptions? There were plenty of opportunities for at least two or three more. It, 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 defied, it defied description, and by the, second, by the beginning of the second half, Philadelphia Eagle fans were just, you know, it was like the Bataan death march. It was just like, let's just get this over with. And, and the final score is only 27 to 10, so it doesn't sound like it's that much of an ass-whipping but when you stop to consider that 21 of those points, 20 fucking one of those points, came off Jaworski interceptions, it was just it was it was just too much to take. Yeah, yeah, definitely for sure. And uh, what was the line on that? They had to have been favored, right? Oh, um, I don't recall off the top of my head, but they were favorites. I want to say, and I want to say like more five. Uh, it might have even been as much as a touchdown, but but definitely they were favorites, and that was a, that was another thing. That later on, you, you know, you got all the guys that took a fucking bath on that Eagle team, and 
you know, they see you the next day in your Eagle T-shirt, and it's like, oh, great, yeah, i got to go down to the plasma center because of you. Thanks, you know? Yeah, yeah, totally. We've definitely all been there. Um, I guess I already know the answer to this question, but uh, so I'll reword it a little bit. Um, <laughs> okay. But was there ever a moment when you considered changing teams? And if so, what caused that moment? And if not, why? But what I but this this is what I really want to say. You know how you have like a second team, like you said, Minnesota is your second team. You know. No, no, team. I hate the Vikings. Fuck the Vikings. Oh, okay, okay. Well, but, but you have a second team that you like other than the Eagles, probably, right? Um. Well, I I I have this I have this thing about about sports teams in general, and I you know I have a favorite, and that's. That's kind of like a wife, you know. It's like no matter what you do, you're always going to go home to that one, you know. But as time goes on, there's teams that you watch and you like just because you like the way they play or they got a couple of players you like. And so you watch them, too, because you can't watch one team all the time, especially not in the NFL. Um, okay, but, but have you ever had a moment where you know you're watching a team that you like for all the right reasons? And have you ever had a moment where you're like, Man, I would probably much rather watch these guys play than the Eagles. Uh, well, yeah. I mean, I mean, I teams. Uh, there's been plenty of times where there's teams I'd much rather watch than the Eagles because there's been so many times when the Eagles have been just dreadful that you know, okay. I'm going to do my duty as an Eagles fan, and I'm going to spend the next three hours just getting kicked in the balls left and right, and then I'm going to tune over, and I'm going to watch a team that doesn't suck, you know, and and that team can have a guy that I liked as a college player or just because, like, for example, um, in the 80s, after the Dick Vermeil era and before we get to the Buddy Ryan era, so, you know, we're talking the mid-80s when, you know, the Eagles were pretty lousy. It was fun to watch the San Francisco 49ers. I'm not going to lie. You know, um, did the 49ers ever become my favorite team? No. Uh, I'm, I'm an Eagles fan. Um, if there was, I mean, I, what I'm hearing in your question is, was there ever a time I thought about switching teams or, you know, you know, I'll go back to the wife analogy. Okay, the Philadelphia Eagles are my quote-unquote wife. Was there ever time I thought about fucking another chick? Is that where we're going? Uh, well, it depends. Who's in the room with you? <laughs> um, well, uh, let's let's just say that um, I'm at liberty to speak at this point, so if you want an honest answer to that question, you better get it now. Yes, yes. Uh, was there ever a time where you kind of accepted, like, okay, like, this might be my second favorite team, might be the 49ers. Okay, well, I never wanted to become a 49er fan, but they were fun to watch. And and the reason why I didn't want to become a 49er fan is because if you lived in California, you realize that 49er fans are they're the biggest collection of Fairweather fans imaginable. And back in the day, when you'd go to Candlestick Park, and, you know, you're sitting there at a football game next to a guy who's wearing a 49er jersey of a player he doesn't know, and he's, you know, drinking white wine and eating sushi. No, this this doesn't work for me. Um, 
I would say the closest that I ever had to picking another team as my favorite was was when I was a kid, and I was still, you know, I wasn't sure who my favorite team was. Remember I said that, you know, hating the Dallas Cowboys snapped a lot of things into place, but before I got really that piece of the the picture, I mean, you know, you go back to 78 with, you know, the, the the heyday of the Love You Blue Houston Oilers, and you watch that, that legendary Monday night game in uh, 1978 against against the Dolphins where Earl Campbell just went crazy um and that crowd and that fan base was so awesome that was that was that that was hard to ignore if you were a guy looking for a team to be a fan of and and, and at the same time I mentioned the Miami Dolphins and you know what was not to like about the Don Shula Dolphins of the 70s if you were looking for a team that you were going to root for I mean there was there was just so much awesomeness in that team; it wasn't even funny. But really, once I picked the Eagles, I, I stayed loyal. You know, I, I may I may look around, but I don't touch. Right, right. So, if if Philadelphia relocated to somewhere other than Philadelphia, would you still remain an Eagles fan, and why or why not? Ooh, that's a good question. Um. Just to be honest, I mean, I don't ever see the Eagles leaving, but, you know, then again, weirder weirder things have happened. Uh, To be real honest, I got to go with no, because to understand the answer, I got to – you got to understand what Philadelphia is really all about if you're not familiar with that city. Philadelphia is an enormous city. It's – it's easily one of the top five largest cities in this country. I think, in fact, I think it is number five. Um, and so it's in a class with New York, Chicago, Los Angeles, Houston, Philadelphia. But the problem that Philadelphia has is that it was the first capital of this country. It was supposed to be, it was supposed to be what New York City is. And when you go to Philadelphia, you realize that it's a lot like New York City's little brother in, in a lot of ways. And Philadelphia has this whole little brother mentality. I mean, Philadelphia has this chip on its shoulder about being the second, you know, the second city to New York. And it has this it has this whole identity issue about the fact that Philadelphia sports teams just never win anything. I mean, the last Philadelphia team to win anything was that Phillies team in what, 2008 won the World Series? Um Yeah, yeah, but people skip over stuff like stuff like that if the team's not that memorable, so I understand what you're saying. Well, and the, the big part is, the big part of this is that, so that's what makes the identity of being a Philadelphia fan, is that, you know, you're sticking by a team that you know doesn't win, and you do it because your roots are in this city, because, you know, not a lot of, I mean, there's a few, but there's not a lot of fans of Philadelphia sports teams in general that aren't from Philadelphia unless one of those teams has like a huge star player. Like when I see when I see Philadelphia people people wearing Philadelphia jerseys that aren't from or obviously aren't from Philadelphia and they're all wearing Reggie White or maybe Randall Cunningham or you know maybe even get into you know some of the stars of of this later era. You see some Deshaun Jacksons, you see some of that kind of shit. Um you never saw anybody wearing a Philadelphia 76er jersey that wasn't Dr. J or Allen Iverson. Uh, but, 
the other the big thing to go along with that is that if the Eagles were to move, it would destroy all the links to the two eras that Eagle fans of my age really hang their hats on, and that's that's the uh, the Dick Vermeil era that I've gone on and on and on about, and then you know the late '80s, early '90s, the Buddy Ryan era when you know that team was you know, so universally hated for being as brash as it was. I mean, they never won a goddamn thing, and, and we all still love them, but that's why we're Eagles fans. Yeah, yeah, I, I can definitely, definitely understand that. Um, I, w- I want to talk a little bit about ownership and staffing and all that, uh, all that stuff. If there was one personnel decision that you think could have changed the Eagles' fortunes, what was it and what would you have done differently as owner dubsism? Um, boy, to, to, to start that answer, I got, I got to go back to something that I just talked about, and that was the Buddy Ryan era when, you know, everybody hated that team and they never won anything. I mean, they were, they were winning their division. They were beating up on the hapless Cowboys, but they couldn't win in the playoffs. And then, and then you get to 1991, and, and, and I'll, I'll bring this full circle. Um, you get to 1991. 1991 is the year everybody in the world is picking, is picking the Eagles as their Super Bowl contender. They were, to use your term, they were the sexy pick. And they go on the road to open the season, 91, in Green Bay. And Bryce Pop, linebacker for the, uh, the Packers, uh, you may or may not remember him, you know, he gets gets a low hit on Randall Cunningham, blows his ACL out. Randall Cunningham's done for the season, and all of a sudden, Eagles fans are thinking, "Hey, yeah, we can get to the Super Bowl with a washed up Jim McMahon." Yeah, no, that that wasn't going to happen. Um, to this day, I still want Bryce Pop dead. But why am I mentioning that? Because Jim McMahon is an important part of. Things that I would have done differently had I had I owned the Eagles. Um, I'll I'll just start throwing some out there. You tell me what you think. First of all, biggest mistake they ever made was not keeping Reggie White. That that really was the end of that that era, and it was the end of that team being competitive until we get to we get to the Andy Reid era. Oh, and by the way, notice when I talked about eras that Eagle fans love that I never once mentioned Andy Reid. There's a reason for that. I won't get into it now. Um, so not keeping Reggie White. Uh, the Namdi Asamoah signing, uh, signing I, I don't know why they did that. Uh, when they tried to replace Reggie White with Tim Harris, um, Vince Young, they signed Vince Young, and you know he's the guy who mentions that goddamn dream team thing, which ensured that team was going 4-12 and for consecutive seasons. Um, Michael Vick, the Michael Vick signing, the day that happened, I really thought my wife was going to have to rush me to the hospital. I really thought I was going to have a stroke. And don't don't misunderstand me. I don't give a shit about the dogfighting thing. You know, the guy went to prison, did his time, blah, blah, blah. I didn't want anything to do with the guy because I knew they were going to spend way too much money on a quarterback who can't win. I mean, Michael Vick looked up some sex. They did. Yeah, they gave him $100 million, which guaranteed that yep. team's going to be mediocre for at least two more years. And, and oh, by the way, you know, now, now we've got Chip Kelly talking about, you know, he doesn't know who his quarterback's going to be. 
like if he even thinks for a minute he's going to put Mark Sanchez under center, I am buying the Duracell battery distributorship in Philadelphia, and I'm going to make a zillion dollars. Yeah, you know, I, I would agree with pretty much all that. Uh, I, I would enhance it by saying uh, the Jim McMahon thing is really what stuck out to me. Um, obviously, as we've discussed many a times, uh, I'm close to a lot of Bears fans that kind of just pine on that 1985 team, like like, it's, <laughs> like that, that it's impossible that anybody could ever be better. But realistically, when we have the discussions, when we talk, when we mention the Trent Dilfers and the Brad Johnsons, I don't see why McMahon shouldn't be right in that conversation with the rest of them. And this is what I want to know about that move. Like, I get it. He, he was a guy who had experience, but, you know, I mean, you can never predict injuries, but I would have suspected that they would have at least tried to maybe come up with a better backup plan. Well, okay, okay, let's, let's, let's get into that, because, because you're, you're absolutely right. First of all, I mean, this is, you got to remember, this is the pre, there's, there's a collective bargaining agreement in the NFL, and it's somewhere in the late 90s, and I can't remember exactly when, but that's when the salary cap got really punitive when you, when you, when you overspent. Before the late 90s, and this is 1991 we're talking about, you could give two quarterbacks money. And there were a lot of guys out there that were a lot better than Jim McMahon because by the time he got to Philadelphia, you know, he'd already been a couple of places where it was pretty clear there was not much left in the tank. But to answer your question about what's the difference between Jim McMahon and guys like Trent Dilfer and Brad Johnson, and I'll give you a one-word answer, personality. Okay? Trent Dilfer and and Brad Johnson have the personalities of, of dry white toast. You know, were those guys ever in movies? Jim McMahon was. Were those guys ever on the cover of Sports Illustrated not winning the Super Bowl? Jim McMahon was. Um, Jim McMahon Jim McMahon was in commercials. Uh, Trent Dilfer and Brad Johnson weren't, other than, you know, the I'm going to Disneyland shit right after, you know, they win the Super Bowl. Um... That's it. I mean, Jim McMahon had a personality larger than life, and he had, I mean, ever since BYU, I mean, that's why anybody paid attention to this guy playing college football at some university in Utah nobody gave a shit about at the time. Uh, That's why. It's because he was a larger-than-life character. Right, but, okay, and and I'll buy some of that, but was he larger was that whole persona much larger than his talent level? Because you have to think about this, okay? So we're talking, you said 91. Okay, yep. that's the year that we're talking about. So we're talking five years after they went to a Super Bowl that didn't really have a lot of uh, offensive direction necessary. You know, I mean, it was pretty, he could pretty, you know, he had what, Willie Gall and Dennis McKinnon, he could throw to those guys every once in a while. But other than that, he pretty much just handed off the ball to Walter. It it wasn't like he was – I was never really very impressed by him in general. I mean, I, I guess I can understand the, the want to sign a personality, but everything you're telling me is, is that, you know, he's got a larger-than-life personality. 
Well, that's fine, but that's the guy that you're signing for your backup, and you don't think that those are those wires are going to cross, and and that's what I think happened. Uh, well, you I, know, you're I, you're I absolutely washed up with hell. Well, and you're absolutely right, but I mean, don't underestimate the power of personality. I mean, I mean, Joe Namath is in the Hall of Fame for one reason, and that was guaranteeing that they were going to beat the Colts. That's it. You look at his numbers, he's got more interceptions and touchdown passes. I mean, this, this legend that Joe Namath was this great quarterback, no. I mean, go back and watch him. And, of course, now there's a little bias in this because I remember living in Los Angeles in, in the 70s and when uh-huh. Joe Namath came to finish his career with the, with the uh, Rams, and it was so obvious the guy's knees were just made out of pudding by this point. Like, what in the fuck is everybody up in arms about this guy? Oh, couldn't get it done on Saturday afternoon, on Sunday afternoon, but boy, the Joe Namath talk show was sure damn entertaining. And, you know, let's not forget, this is Hollywood at the time. Um, personality. Personality counts. You know, does it win you football games? No, but it sells tickets. What was, uh... This was before the passer rating was a really big thing, and I don't have a a PC in front of me, but it would be interesting to see what, after Randall went down, Jim's numbers as as far as just how everything progressed. I I don't know. I I hear what you're saying. I understand that personality is big. I personally think the Nana thing has a lot to do with that particular five-year space in the NFL was like that, that that was building a foundation. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I'm not sure I'm not sure if Jim McMahon would have guaranteed a Super Bowl victory in ninety one and won it that that he would be in the Hall of Fame either because it's just a different league. But that's that that's neither here nor there. But uh but no, I, I would agree with that. I would definitely uh the Reggie White thing was very puzzling to me. Um I mean, it, it, it's, like you said, I'm a Giants fan. It was great news to me. I remember hearing about that, and I was like, whoo, yes. Like, that was that was the most awesome thing, you know, that you could possibly hear. But, uh, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I mean, there's there's several. You talked about the big thing. Um, I, I, as much as I love animals, I do believe, you know, a lot of that stuff was was overblown and you know here again we got another example of a guy who was just who outside of all that outside of the dog fighting outside of all that was just a genuinely shitty person and there are a lot of shitty people that you meet in life you know you meet them you work with them you have to see them at the grocery store but the difference is you don't really pay those people a hundred million dollars and so to I, I don't know to me I that's that's the one that really stuck out. It's like, oh my God, this is you know a huge waste of money, for sure. Well, and it, you know your 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 point about shitty people gets amplified in the NFL, where where there's a couple of a couple of um, facts that people just really can't deny. That one is people with legitimate talent get treated differently, and two, the NFL's got a really fucked up sense of priority because. I can be a running back that beats the shit out of his fiance, wife, whatever you want to call her, gets a two-game suspension. But if I get caught smoking a joint, boy, I mean, I, I could get sent to Guantanamo. So, you know, 
you, you mash all these things together and you realize that you know the NFL's got a really a really fucked up cultural issue going on. But that that's off topic for what we're trying to get to here, right? For sure, definitely, definitely. So uh, <laughs> it, it's kind of funny because we were just talking about things that would go on off the field or uh, in Ray Rice's uh, case, you know, in the elevator. Um, what was the toughest off the field moment for you being a fan as far as what so we, we talk about hating the Cowboys. What was your Philadelphia Eagles Nate Newton moment? Nate Newton moment. Ooh. I, I don't know if I've really got a Nate Newton moment. I you know, I alluded to the Michael Vick signing. Uh I was pissed for that about that for years. I mean until until we finally pawned him off on the Jets, I, just every time I saw him, my blood pressure went up 50 points. And it, like I said, it was just a waste of money, and I still got two years of absolute mediocrity to live through because of that deal. Um, and, I mean, I've, I've got every chance that at some point in this season coming up, I am going to see either Mark Sanchez or Matt Barkley is my quarterback, and then I'm going to go right back to blaming this all on, on Michael Vick. Um, but for the, the big, the big tough off-the-field moment really had to be Jerome Brown's death in 92. That was such a gut punch because, once again, if you go back to 91, this was the year the Eagles were going to win and Randall Cunningham got hurt. And now we're going into 92, and well, Cunningham's healthy, the team's looking good, everything's ready to snap into place, and one of the keystones of your defense dies in a car accident. And um, I don't know if you remember what the funeral that they had for him at the vet was like, but, you know, Reggie White, you know, the, the Baptist minister that he was, you know, gave this eulogy, and there wasn't a dry eye in the stadium or watching on TV. You just, you know, if you didn't cry at that moment, you are made of stone. It was, it was unbelievable. And the worst part of it, the worst part of it was, is that you knew that this was the beginning of the end because Jerome Brown died, and then Reggie White left. And then the Eagles hired Rich fucking Kotite, and, you know, we went from a team, in the span of two years, we went from a team that was a legitimate Super Bowl contender to a team that might not have been able to beat Villanova. Yeah, and I, you know, I I will say this, I... There are a few moments on television that I can legitimately say that I remember, and I'm not trying to trivialize other big events, um, but that was a moment that I did remember. Um, I I do remember that, you know, and it wasn't like you, you know back in you know back in the day you couldn't go and check it out on YouTube. You know, you just had to wait for the Sports Center feed to to go and show it. And I mean, right? I mean, we're talking about they had the they had the guy's funeral at the stadium. If you're an important enough member of the team and everybody has that much respect for you so that they actually have the stadium there or or the the funeral at the stadium. And then, you know, Reggie just talked and it was totally just like, I I did kind of feel like it was really about to, 
go downhill. I, I, I didn't know it was headed to rich Kotite territory, but that's, you know, but uh, those, that's one of the few real uh, sports speeches that I really remember. And one of the, you know, definitely a moment from television uh, that I saw, uh, I, I'm probably going to actually probably going to go watch that. I'm sure you can find it on YouTube. Uh, oh yeah. After after you listen to it, but I, it's it's kind of funny. Uh, I, I'm in in, uh, in out of all respect, I'm wearing my Randall Cunningham jersey right now. Uh, the white you're one. A, you're uh, wait, you're I, a Gi- I, you're I, a Giants fan. You do not have a Randall Cunningham jersey. Stop it. Yeah, I do. And you know what's funny about it too? And uh, I'll actually post pictures of it. But uh, it's the one with the '99 black emblem on the left shoulder, man. Like it's that one. Like, it, you know, that, I mean, you want to talk about, I mean, that, it, it wasn't necessarily your lead singer dying, but damn, it was about as close as it could get. So, you know, I. It was, it was, it was, it was Led Zeppelin when John Bonham died. You know, you don't need to be a lead singer to, 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 to be a key player. I mean, let's, let's be honest. It, it, exactly. And, uh, you know, obviously, you know, Reggie said other things over the years that I don't necessarily agree with, but he really kind of put that aside for that speech, man. Like, it was really, you know, it was, yeah. I mean, and, and it wasn't it a, uh, when did Derek Thomas die? I, I know this is kind of unrelated, but it was a similar incident, right? Yeah, it was, it was a very similar, very similar situation. Um, yeah. And, yeah, Derek Thomas, another one of those situations that, you know, you just you knew that was going to change the fortune of a, of a franchise. I mean, it's when you lose a a key player like that in that way. There's no way it doesn't have it doesn't have an impact. And you know, for for the Eagles, I mean that that just really <laughs> that really led to about five years that were just really hard to take. So. And the worst part is the worst part of it is is that when you're a team that loses, and so there's nothing positive to talk about on the field, you're three years down the road and people still bring up Jerome Brown. You know, like come on, just let me have some closure with this. Thank, thanks for ripping that scab open again. You know. Yeah. Yeah. yeah definitely. I, I can definitely hear that. Uh, I mean, and it, you talked about the gut punch thing about how it just kind of felt like a gut punch. Um, mm-hmm. The reason why I brought up the Derek Thomas thing is, you know, how fucked up is it that Jerome Brown and Derek Thomas are dead, and some state somewhere is paying to feed Lawrence Taylor three times a day in prison. Well, that's, I was just gonna, I was just gonna say, I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I'm blown away that you have a Randall Cunningham jersey and and to uh, to to show you know kinship with with a Giants fan. I was like. I'm going to go out to a Motel 6 tonight and do some blow with a teenage hooker. You're going to video, right? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. That's, you know, that's that's, you know, that's why I've got uh, Skype fucking up my computer um as we speak. By the way, yeah, um to you uh Skype people, eat me. Just all I'm going to say. I'm not anything other than that, but uh Moving on to a no other, no other explanation is given because no other explanation is needed. So that's uh, exactly right. So we talked a little bit about personnel stuff over the years. Um, we talk about the proverbial magic wand 
like if you could kind of just hover over your franchise with one hand and change one thing about your team, and this could this could be anything. This could be ownership. This could be. Uh, I I know we haven't talked much about Super Bowl Thirty Nine uh, yet, and I kind of wanted to talk a little bit more about that. But uh, what's the one thing you could just be like that was so fucking frustrating that you could that you just think that's the first place I would start? Okay, all right. Well, we're gonna have to play a little game of let's make a deal here because. Um, I am an Eagles fan that thinks the Super Bowl against the Patriots is just not worth discussing. Uh, so, you know, one of my, you know, I would erase that moment in time if I could because we went into that game knowing we weren't going to win. And but if you want to talk about it, we'll talk about it. But I, I don't know if I can limit my my list to one thing. So. Let me let me have my rant, and then at the end we come back, and I'll I'll answer any goddamn question you want about uh, Super Bowl Thirty Nine. Um, let's see, what would I what would I do? Oh, I know one thing I would have done. I would have never changed the uh, uniforms from the Vermeil era, from like you know seventy eight, seventy nine. You know the jerseys that had the big white and gray stripes on on the sleeves. Um, and the reason why I would have never changed those is because if you remember, and you can go back and look this up. Mick Jagger used to run around in a number 21 John Chiara jersey on stage. And if you, you know, Google Mick Jagger Eagles jersey, you'll see all kinds of pictures of who was arguably the biggest rock star in the world at the time running around in our jersey. You know, you it's don't true. get yeah. you you don't get better publicity than that. Um, they made the movie Invincible in in those jerseys and. Um, Oh, by the way, I've still never forgiven whoever put Greg Kinnear in the role of Dick Vermeil. Um, AIDS to your face for whoever did that. Uh, AIDS all over your face, in your eardrums, and <laughs> down the back of your throat. For real. Like, that, that has got to be, like, the most catastrophic casting move ever. That would be like, that would be like if we made a movie about the Giants and, and we cast, oh... Um, we cast like you know Wilford Brimley as Tom Coughlin. You know, it's just go die. Just don't do this to us. But the point is, is that that was the height of their their pop culture fame. And when they changed away from those uniforms, they they lost all of that. Um, oh, another thing I would have done. I would have never put that awful turf in Veterans Stadium. Okay, you're around Bears fans. Do you ever hear Bears fans bring up the name Wendell Davis? I oh my god, I I I've this seen is him play. this yeah. is nineteen this is nineteen ninety three. The guy yep. all he's doing is running a post pattern. Nobody uh, is within twenty feet of him, and he blows out both his ACLs just running on that turf. It was a crime, you know. And the fact that they played NFL football on that shit for close to thirty years. Somebody should be held responsible for that. I mean, first of all, somebody should go buy Wendell Davis some new knees. Every time I see one of those commercials on daytime TV, he's like, do you have a fucked up knee implant? I, Richard, not Richard, Wendell Davis is sitting there, you know, eating a hot pot going, yeah, I got fucked up knees. Thank you, Philadelphia. Um, uh, speaking of that. No, no, I, I, I will say this. Uh, I... You know, at, at that point in time, 
we have to admit that that was kind of a fad. I, I, I can't I can't fault them completely because at the time that was what everybody was doing. Like if you were supposedly in like the next group of franchises that wanted to make a push, you changed your turf to being artificial turf. Um, but that being said, it was in retrospect it was such a horrible decision. And it's something that nobody really brings up when we talk about, like, a lot of the injuries that, you know, some of these guys are suffering post-retirement. You know, I mean, if you blew your knee out at Veterans Stadium or, I mean, shit. When, uh, you know, I can definitely say that uh, the old Soldier Field was artificial turf, too. Like, Oh, that, that, that fucking like, shit was everywhere. But the problem, the problem wasn't the turf itself. Well, no, I take that back. The problem was turf. But in Philadelphia, I mean, first of all, they compounded it by putting it in this, you know, ridiculously low-rent, multi-purpose stadium. So you always had these seams where, like, the base, the cutouts for the baseball, like the pitcher's mound and home plate and all this shit, and then you had these seams everywhere that were just made for catching spikes and ripping knees up. So, yeah, artificial turf sucked, but Philadelphia did it in a way that was so much worse than the way everybody else did it. I mean... You know, Wendell, I mean, there's a reason why Wendell Davis happened in Philadelphia and didn't happen in Chicago, or didn't happen in, you know, you know, um, the Meadowlands. The Meadowlands had artificial turf for the longest time. Um, yes. Or Cow- Cowboys Stadium had artificial turf. I mean, you know, you basically anywhere outside of the south where it was easy to grow grass year-round went to turf, but Philadelphia did it worse than anybody else. Now, to be fair... To be fair, you can make a natural turf field just as shitty because I mean, look at what the Redskins did a couple of years ago, or look at what look at what the new Soldier Field looks like and will look like this year by November. You know, it'll look like it'll look like the uh, field outside the State Fair where they let everybody park their pickup trucks. You know. Yeah, yeah. It, at, at that particular point in time, though, it 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 really was a hit. Uh, Houston. I believe did it. I, I would say you're probably right saying Philly was the worst. I would say the old county stadium in Atlanta was probably a pretty close second. Um, but, you know, and now I I think they have the right format. They have the right formula to, you know, grow the, you know, the natural grass and then just obviously spray paint it or do whatever that needs to do. But, uh, yeah, I mean, Soldier Soldier Field and whatever that is that, that you call that they hold games at in Jacksonville, um, just, I mean, right down the middle. Uh, <laughs> right. Totally, totally, totally tore up. So, uh, so is there anything else that you would change as far? Oh, as- yeah, I'm not even I'm not even close to done with the magic wand okay, stuff. Cool. I mean, yeah. um, go back uh, go back to the 1960s. Here's here's an old man story, but. Uh, the Eagles had hired a coach named Joe Kaharick, and Joe Kaharick comes to fame because he was the coach at Notre Dame, and obviously Notre Dame in the 60s meant you were a big-time football coach. So the Eagles yeah. gave this guy a lot of money, um, bring him into Philadelphia, and of course he has no clue how to coach professional players. The Eagles are so bad that literally somebody – called the team and said they were going to go up on the roof of the stadium with a deer rifle and waste Joe Kuharek. And if I would have been around in those days, I would have found that sniper 
And I would have given him a 308 with a telescopic sight. <laughs> and better directions. Yeah. Right. You know, I would, I, would have like, him, I would have sent him to the Lee Harvey Oswald school of hitting moving targets. Uh, for real, dude. Yeah, like, I'm giving him the same instructions that I'm giving the guy who feels the same way about Sarah Palin. I mean, wait. Oh, whoa. <laughs> you know, yeah, you just know. saying, just saying. Just if, somebody, if somebody kills Sarah Palin, I'm going to have real trouble getting drink service on my next first-class flight. So let's just ease up there, okay? Okay, uh, okay. Uh, another, another thing. No, wait, another thing. Uh, I, I would have gone back and I, to, to Super Bowl 15, and I would have benched Ron Jaworski after the second pick. Um, and then that would have set us up for a moment, because if you get Ron Jaworski off the field, the Eagles win that game. <laughs> How much irony would it be to have Joe Pisarczyk as the winning quarterback for the Eagles, considering he was the guy who fumbled the ball to set up the miracle at the Meadowlands? How fucking awesome that, would that have been? That would have been that that would have been really hilarious. And uh, you know, a lot of people don't know that fact that in fact, you know, yeah, he was George's backup for that. Um, I, you know, it's 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 hard enough to listen to Ron on television now, um, but uh, you know after knowing that he had a game like that, it, it, it's even harder, you know, when he does his, you know, power jack off rating or whatever. And he says, he says, he says somebody's like 32nd best quarterback in the league. I'm just like, yeah, sure. You know, but, well, uh, we know, we know where Jaworski is. Where, where's Joe Pisarczyk? Does anybody know? Yeah, I'll give you that. Um, I don't know what happened to him. I I guess, to be brutally honest with you, I would have assumed that before Steve Sable died, they would have done one of those short 15-minute NFL Films pieces on him, you know, where they just, where NFL Films just kind of like randomly, you know, looks for a story in its history or films Snoop Dogg for 15 minutes, like one of those shows. I, well, I think I think they wanted to do that with Joe Pisarczyk, but I don't think um, that the uh, people at the New Jersey Turnpike allow filming at toll booths. I, I think Pisarczyk may be collecting correct. tolls there. That's yeah. definitely true. He's, now, he's I, the I, guy I, dropping your quarter, by the way. Now, I don't understand the significance in, in the same manner in the same manner that you do, but I I, I do have to say. I guess I don't think that in my mind, like they keep replaying that video and they keep they keep talking about the miracle of the Meadowlands and all that other stuff. But I was it really that much of a turning point? I guess I mean was it was it such to the point where it, it was such a spark that it was more than just something that happened late on a Monday night after everyone else had gone to bed? Uh well, first of all, it was a Sunday, not a Monday. Um, oh, the that's, Eagles, that's the that's Eagles, and the Giants would have never, and I mean never, been on Monday Night Football in 1978. That just no, that that was not happening. Um, but yeah, it it was a huge moment because if you if you remember, the NFC East of the 1970s consisted of five teams. There was the Philadelphia Eagles, the New York Giants, the Washington Redskins, the Dallas Cowboys. And what was then the St. Louis Cardinals? St. Louis Cardinals. Okay. Right. Four of those teams were terrible. Okay. And the Cowboys were the one that weren't. Now the Cardinals and the Redskins weren't going anywhere. 
But the Giants and the Eagles had signs of life, and they were both moving up in the world. And 78 is the year where, okay, one of these teams is going to step up and be the team that starts challenging the Cowboys. And it kept looking and kept looking and kept looking like it was going to be the Giants. And that game, the Giants are winning. You got 13 seconds left on the clock. The Giants win that game. They move into a position where, okay, they can start pushing the Cowboys to put some pressure on them to you know, maybe make a wild card spot, maybe maybe even, you know, get lucky and win a game here and there, be a factor in, in, in the playoffs. And then all of a sudden that play happens. And, you know, the Eagles fans and Eagle Nation goes crazy because that was a they Eagles fans are by nature pessimists because we've been shitty for so long that when we're losing we expect to lose. And when you get a miracle win like that all of a sudden it charged that whole fan base. And all of a sudden Eagle fans stopped being pessimists and they believed. And you looked up the road to New York and the Giants, and that Monday the Giants fired all their coaches. They fired the head coach. They fired all the coordinators. Uh, everybody down to the towel boy lost their job. And that led the Giants to five years of being truly awful until they – I mean, literally the Giants were terrible – for the next five years until they hired Bill Parcells. And so, yeah, that that play, that game, changed the fortunes of those two teams. Had that game gone the other way around, it's very possible that it was the Giants that were going to the Super Bowl in 1980 against the Raiders and not the Eagles. Yeah. Um, I'm actually kind of glad that didn't happen. That That doesn't sound like it would have been a very good game. <laughs> Um, Well, and if you stop and think about it, you know, one of the things that happened is because because the Giants dropped off the cliff about a year or so later, they use a first-round draft pick and draft this guy named Phil Simms. That seemed to work out pretty well for them. And then a couple of years after that, they used another high first-round pick to draft a guy named Lawrence Taylor. So, yeah, yeah, for sure. So, uh Basically, what I'm going to do is I'm gonna, I'm just going to do some brief word association. You talked about the NFC, uh, no, you talked about the NFC East, and uh, I'm glad you brought that up because the, the old structure. Uh, a lot of people don't realize that the Cardinals were uh, trying to at least become a you know become a part of the NFC East for a while, um, and uh, you know, weren't they there? When they first moved to Arizona, they were, for some reason, before the restructure, they were still stuck in the NFC East. Is that correct? Oh, that's absolutely correct. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's- the, the Arizona Cardinals were in the, NFC, were in the NFC East for a long time, much like the Atlanta Falcons and the New Orleans Saints were in the NFC West. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Well, I bet the, I bet the Arizona Cardinals wish that they were in the NFC East right now. Uh, but that's that's another story. But so what I'm going to do is I'm just going to I'm going to say certain things, and you just give me the, the words that come to your head. Okay. Okay. Right away. Terrell Owens. Uh, good riddance. That's that's fair. I can live with that. Uh, yeah, I you know. When when Terrell Owens was doing his whole little routine when he was with the 49ers, 
you know, and he was, you know, doing that little thing where he was spiking the ball on the star at uh, Cowboys Stadium. You know, I, I was hoping that somebody from the Cowboys would have just blown his knees out. Um, I, I don't do hot dogs. Fuck him. I, I don't need him. Okay. So, uh, okay, so I, I've had this argument for a while, and, and I posted an, art, uh, an article about it actually a while back about uh, the discussion where we talk about the line between Hall of Famers and not Hall of Famers. And uh-huh. uh, I, I brought up the idea that perhaps Donovan McNabb is the line, which means that's the line where you get, you know, everything below it is like Kerry Collins and everybody else who kind of, you know, has had super inflated stats. Do you even give him that much credit, or are you willing to say, like, he pretty much not doesn't belong in the conversation, but shouldn't be seriously considered. No, I'll, by I'll, I'll, I'll say, I'll, I'll, I'll go on record. Donovan McNabb does not belong in the Hall of Fame conversation. Let me say that again. Donovan McNabb does not belong in the Hall of Fame conversation. Okay? Go, it's funny you brought up Kerry Collins. You talk about guys that have inflated stats. Well, Everybody in the NFL has inflated stats if you're a quarterback in the last 15 years because we changed the rules. I mean, first we started this in 78 when we disallowed bump and run coverage. And then when we got into the 90s and we basically, you know, said, okay, you can't touch receivers, period. And then, you know, we started giving them armed escorts by Blackwater down the field. Um yeah, you know, go look at the career passing yards of guys like Kerry Collins and Vinny Testaverde and compare them to some guys like Donovan McNabb and compare them to some old school guys who are actually in the Hall of Fame. And it's going to be an eye-opener. I mean, Vinny Testaverde has a shitload more passing yards than you think he does. Kerry Collins has over 40,000, and 40,000 passing yards before we got into the last three or four years where guys were tossing 5,000 yards a season, you know, 40,000 passing yards was like 400 home runs. I mean, anybody except for a couple of big exceptions that had those numbers was in the Hall of Fame. So Donovan McNabb's not even close. Fuck Donovan McNabb. Yeah. No, he's not a Hall okay. of Famer. Okay, so uh... – you had made the statement about Super Bowl 39. You wish it was kind of just stricken from the record. Um, yeah, okay. I, I have another theory. I personally think those three years, okay, 39, 40, and 41, I just thought the league was in a serious dip in those years. Would you be willing to uh, accept the fact that I'll accept the fact that you can erase 39, but you've got to almost erase 40 and 41, too, because they were just horrible Super Bowls. I mean, wouldn't it, do you feel that way? or do you, you know? Well, I'll, I'll, I'll do you one better. Um, you know, I'm, I'm on record as saying that the Super Bowl is dangerously close to jumping the shark in the sense that, you know, we have watered this product down so much to make it a cultural event that football is dangerously close to becoming a secondary part of this. You know, you go to one of those Super Bowl parties, and, you know, you're in a room full of people that are talking about the fucking commercials. Like, oh, really? And nobody at the NFL sees this as a problem because it just means hot and cold running money. 
But eventually you're going to get to the point where nobody cares about the game. The game's already becoming secondary. We fuck around with the game all the time to shoehorn in more things that make money. We, we delay the start of the game so we can have some lame-ass opening, you know, opening ceremony. We make the halftime 45 minutes long, which completely fucks up the flow of the game for the players. And then we spend two hours afterward, you know, giving away a trophy and talking about going to Disney World. Um, this, this thing's going to have a real problem one of these days, and I don't think anybody at the NFL wants to see that. I agree. I, I definitely agree. Okay, let's, do, let's just do a couple quick more ones. Three most irritating things about the Dallas Cowboys go. Three most irritating things. Wow. Can I keep this to three? Um, boy. Go. <laughs> number, number one, number one, the fan base. Um, Dallas Cowboy fans are everywhere, and they may be the least educated about football out of anybody in the NFL, and what drives me crazy about Cowboy fans is that Cowboy fans are the ones that will keep telling you about how shitty Tony Romo is while they're wearing a Tony Romo jersey, okay? Um, Number two, and this is another rant about Cowboy fans, Cowboy fans don't seem to understand that the Cowboys haven't won anything in 20 fucking years now. You know, I mean, the Barry Switzer Super Bowl was 1990-something. You know, what, 96, 95, somewhere in there? That was the last one, yeah. Yeah, well, okay, we're nudging up on 20 years, and I think they've won, what, maybe one playoff game in there? Stop telling me about how great the Cowboys are. And number three, uh, other than the fact that Cowboy fans are everywhere, I would I would have to say, and I'm working on I'm working on a piece on Dubsism that's trying to explain the miracle of the salary cap because Cowboy fans do not understand that all the money that they've given Tony Romo virtually guarantees that the Cowboys will not be competitive for another five years at least because they don't understand that when you have a salary cap and you keep backloading deals, eventually you've got to pay these guys off. You know, you know what the Cowboys and, and, and the Patriots are another team that's doing this, but we're talking about the Cowboys. What the Cowboys are doing is they've run up all their credit cards and they're using, and they're like, they're, they just keep paying the minimum payment, minimum payment, minimum payment. They get a coupon in the mail that says, oh, you can skip a payment this month. Oh, great. They don't realize that they skip a payment. The interest keeps racking up. And so one day, all of a sudden, they get a letter in the mail that says, by the way, your credit card's maxed out. You owe us this much money. Pay up. And then they go, well, wait a minute. we got to sign draft picks and free agents. Too bad. You don't have any money. That's what's going to happen to this team. They're headed for salary cap hell. It's coming in about 2016, 2017, and and then it's going to be it's going to be a return to the late 80s when the Cowboys were winning one game a season, and that that that's going to be sweet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I totally agree with that. Uh, you you had mentioned that uh, you never really hated the Giants, and you didn't really have much of an opinion on Washington. Uh, why does why do why do the Washington Redskins bore you and I so much? Um, easy because when the Redskins were good, 
Um, well, no, I'll say this for me. When the Redskins were good, the Joe Gibbs era Redskins, the Eagles really weren't. So, okay, so, you know, that's just like being the teenage kid mad at the guy who's got a nicer car than I do. Well, you know, i got to go get a better job buy a nicer car. Big deal. Um, with the Giants, for a lot of the times when the Joe Gibbs uh, Redskins were good, so were you. So, you know, there was a lot of times where, oh, okay, you know, the Redskins are going to win a Super Bowl, and the Giants say, well, fuck it, we'll just go win the next one. So, you know, there was there was always that. Plus, there was there was never this thing. I think the bigger question is, why do all three of those teams, why do the fans of all three of those teams hate the Cowboys? I think that's the real question. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Because Redskins fans... Redskins fans don't hate the Giants. And Redskins fans, eh, they, they don't really hate the Eagles. Giants fans and Eagles fans, okay, that can be an issue. I'll give you that. Yeah. But everybody hates the Cowboys. Yeah, yeah for sure. So, um, There's one last question that I, I, I want to get into, and that's – there was always the, the talk about uh, the old veteran stadium about the jail. <laughs> okay, and and I did, I just want to I want to say a couple things. Um, I personally uh, have read I've actually read John Gruden's book. Um, mm-hmm. I know I know that's kind of a weird thing to say, but I've read it. Um, he has some crazy stories about the veterans about Veteran Stadium in that book. Um, one of my favorite stories is the fact that there were. <laughs> There were cats that used to catch the rats outside of the stadium, you know, so right, mm-hmm. right there, you know, like it's super dirty. And the cats would get somehow get into the building, and they would wedge themselves in the top of the ceiling, and then they would piss on those, uh, <laughs> on those the, the, the foam ceiling things. That the fake ceiling tiles, yeah. Like yeah, you look up and, like, if it's brown, like, that's not good news. And he said, mm-hmm. the old Eagles coaches, I can't remember who it was, but uh, was just sitting there at his desk, and there was a cat that was asleep, and the cat had pissed <laughs> through one of those tiles, and the weight of the cat mixed with, like, the warm piss broke the tile, and this cat just, like, fell on the floor. And I just... <laughs> Yeah, and, and he, tell, he goes on to tell all sorts of stories about how structurally that this is one of the worst, and you know, I, I I've heard accounts that it's pretty bad. You know that it, yeah, it it, it, it was, and, and to understand to understand what Veteran Stadium was all about, you have to understand where it is. I mean, in Philadelphia, you go to the south; it's on the south side of the city. And the yep. south side of the city is where the where the shipyard is. It's where the airport is. There's a big old oil refinery down there. So when you were going to a game at Veterans Stadium, the smell you got to enjoy all depended on which way the wind was blowing. If it was coming from the north, you got to smell burning jet fuel. If it was coming from the south, you got to smell welding from a shipyard. Uh, coming from the other way, you got to smell an oil refinery. Oh, and let's not forget, if it was coming off the river and a big old trash barge happened to be going by, mm, in August in Philadelphia, nothing perfumes the air like 4,000 tons of rotting garbage. 
Um, so that's that's I mean that's just for openers. And then to get there, to get to you know this place, you have to go through a couple of the worst neighborhoods in the city. So you know you you run the risk of getting a bottle thrown through your windshield, or you know if there if you were leaving a night game at the vet and you had to go a way that wasn't on the freeway to get out of there, and you came up to a red light and there was nobody around or there was no traffic, you just kept going. Because if you stopped, you had every chance of not getting out of there with, at the very least, losing your hubcaps. So that's that's the vet, you know. Now, to be fair, we built the link in exactly the same spot, but since it's the brand new, a brand-new place with a new and improved jail... Um, we don't talk about what a shithole it is. Right, right. Um, but, but going back to the jail, I, I, I do want to talk about that. Do you feel like I, I kind of had this weird moment when I was going over the notes earlier, and I was, I was thinking about it, and I, uh, I don't necessarily think, and this is a weird thing for a libertarian to say, I don't necessarily think it's that bad of an idea have a jail in a stadium. I think the jail thing is a little bit overstated. Um, you know, obviously you can't put one in, you know, the Oakland Coliseum because nobody on probation would show up, and that's like seventy-five percent of their, you know, of their fan base. But like, if you put if you put a jail, wait a minute, no, if you put a jail in the Oakland Coliseum, you may have to put it where the skyboxes are because some of the people who have money that go to Raider games are thug as shit. So you, you oh, know, yeah. Like, yeah, yeah, you know, corporate skybox with your suit and tie guys. It's the Bay Area, and then the skybox right next to it that has like the bars and shit, and guys rattling tin cups on it. Yeah, that's Oakland. Yeah, but I, I, I don't know. I guess I, I, I kind of expected it. I, uh, I, I don't think I, I just think it's a little bit overstated. The people kind of rag on the jail thing. Um, what was it? During the the old blood bowls that they had, which was the game? There was some there was some game that totally justifies my argument too. It was when it was snowing, and they were playing they were playing the Cowboys at home, and people had brought rocks and they packed them inside of the snowballs and they were oh yeah, the yeah 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 okay like, yeah this is yeah, this is a good idea that you have a jail there. Yeah, this was Bounty Bowl too, you know. And I, whenever we when we were talking about the Saints getting all kinds of trouble for all that bounty shit, I was like, well, wait a minute. I'm an Eagles fan. I remember Buddy Ryan going on ESPN saying, "Hey, I'll, 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 here's money. You bring me the head of this guy, this guy, this guy." You posted <laughs> you know? a video. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So okay, so yeah, Bounty Bowl too. Um, the security people in Philadelphia. You know, when they start noticing guys, you know, they were putting things out on the news like, we will be confiscating batteries at the gate, okay? Well, they didn't say anything about lug nuts or rocks or those big shooter marbles or, you know, ball bearings. <laughs> like, And the security guys go, well, they ain't batteries. <laughs> and, of course, we didn't bother shoveling any of the snow out of the stadium, so... You know, 38-degree temperatures, that snow just becomes really good for hiding a lug nut in. And so then the Cowboys, knowing that shit might happen, what do they do? They put Jimmy Hairdo Johnson right out there on the sideline. And what they, they do? sure did. He, 
he starts waving at the crowd, and of course, here come the Wugnuts. I mean, first of all, you should have given him a helmet, or maybe better yet, you know, like, you watch soccer, and they have those little plastic things where the bench is, so you can't throw shit at them. You know, that's what they needed. But nobody thought that far. And not to mention, it's Philadelphia. You know, and, and I'm amazed that we've gotten 90 minutes into this conversation, and we didn't talk about how they booed Santa. You know, people that throw shit at Santa are going to throw shit at Jimmy Johnson. It's just a fact. Wait, are you telling me that Jimmy Johnson's not Santa? Um, he doesn't have a is beard. Is Jimmy Johnson real, John? Well, yes, he is. Uh, Jimmy Johnson doesn't have a beard, but he does have a pot belly, and he does get a weird weird thing out of having little kids sit on his lap. That's all I'm going to say. This is, a, uh, this is an interesting conversation, too, because it's very important that we mention that these games that we were talking about were 20 years ago. Um. Oh, absolutely. Security was much different then. I think that's a bit of an understatement. Um, security was much different. I mean, it's not like now where you have all the guys, you know, where you just have the guys standing in the aisle and they have their backs to the game and they're just looking at everything you're doing. You know, there's <laughs> – and, I mean, even if it was like that back in the day, Philadelphia probably wouldn't have hired them. But you get that point. Well, yeah, and I mean, you know, there's there's a lot of there's a lot of things that, that changed. I mean, in in the 20 years, you know, that we're talking about. I mean, first, I mean, obviously, 9/11. 9/11 changed everything when it came to security. Um, the the fact that we started building new football stadiums and raised up ticket prices so that, you know, we didn't have, you know, we didn't have Joe Lunch Bucket buying thirty dollar tickets sitting at the fifty yard line in the lower deck. That's not happening anymore. I mean, you want to get you want to get prime real estate tickets at an NFL game. You're you're paying for them. You know. Yeah. I mean, you can't even sit in nosebleed country for under fifty bucks at most stadiums anymore, um, if that. So, well, yeah, if a, it's a smaller market, you can probably get a ticket like a fun special or whatever. But and you know, you, you can't. Everybody knows that your team's not going to the playoffs. Like you can probably get a ticket for. But no, it is a much different. It is definitely a much different experience. So what I'm going to close this out. I, I want you to think. But we've done a lot of like poo pooing of the past. Um, <laughs> that's kind of, because that's kind of what this is about. You know, that's that's what we that's what we're talking about here today. So um, Eagles fans, wait a minute. Eagles fans live in the past because it's really all we fucking got. Let's be honest. Right. Okay. So 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 riddle me this then. How do you plan to move out of that and think about the future? Like, okay, like we talk about like three, five-year plans, 10-year plans, 15-year plans. Um, how many well, I think, I, think, I think you can't say anything in terms of long-term plans in the NFL because the NFL now has become the – well, it has become the classic what-have-you-done-for-me-lately world. I mean, if you have a coach – that you bring in, and he doesn't win in four years, he's fucking gone, you know. So Chip Kelly's on year two, okay. And year two means he's gotta he's gotta get that team into the playoffs, which the way that team looks right now, I think might be a tall order. But they're in the NFC East where everybody sucks, so anything's possible. Uh, five year plan? I don't believe in five year plans in the NFL. I don't think they exist anymore. 
But to play hypothetical, I think really the plan at this point hinges on what happens in year three under Chip Kelly. If that team becomes a playoff team and Jeffrey Lurie decides he wants to, to crank open the checkbook and sign some free agents, the Eagles could become something interesting again. The other side of the coin, they don't make the playoffs. Lurie clams up. The Eagles go back to being incredibly mediocre for five more years. Yeah. Yeah, I, I could definitely see it. I, I guess more of my question was, uh, and, and I guess he kind of negated that too when he talked about nobody knows who's going to be where as far as like a long-term plan. Um, I guess I look at the NFC right now and I don't see it getting weaker anytime soon. So no. I was kind of, you know, wondering how you thought that they fit in to the – it was so it's so fitting that that Saints game was like a one-point victory. I mean, I know that's probably a sore subject, but like, you know, like those two teams are fairly matched. Where do they get to the point where they are on a level of like the 49ers and the Seahawks? The Eagles? How do they get to that yeah. level? Wow. Um, boy, that that's besides that, just that, your average Nick. Ford that's player. that's kind of like that's kind of like saying how do I turn a Whopper from Burger King into a steak? Um, there is such a wide gulf between the Seahawks and the 49ers. And well, here's the food chain in the NFC: Seahawks and 49ers at the top. Right underneath them, you got team a team like the Cardinals, and then right underneath that, you got mediocre Central: Bears, Lions, uh, um, Eagles, Giants, um, Cowboys. Uh, and then and then you've got you know shitty to really shitty, which is going to be you know, Vikings and um, you know, Rams. I don't buy the Rams. They're getting all kinds of hype. I, I don't buy them. Um, and so to get, if you're the Eagles and you're in that layer that's two, one or two layers below the below the um, Rams, or, the, or not the Rams, the, the 49ers or the Seahawks, so one, you got to find a young quarterback that lights up the world. Nick Foles might be that guy. We don't know. He's shown flashes of being pretty fucking interesting. So, unless somebody gets gets a gets a brain hemorrhage and decides that Matt Barkley or Mark Sanchez is the way to go, that might be one piece. But then you got to take you got to take that guy and you got to put weapons around him. And and the weapons they're going with now, you know, an old Darren Sproles, you know, Riley Cooper. You know, Brent Selleck. I mean, I don't, I don't know if any of these guys really excite me that much. But the thing they really got to do other than that, than having that, that offense that can, you know, get you the third and three when you absolutely positively have to have it, is a defense that stops people. And the Eagles do not have that right now. I don't give a shit what anybody wants to tell me. The Eagles can't stop anything right now. And until they do it's almost pointless to even fathom them being in the same class as the 49ers and the Seahawks. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, uh, probably going to just go ahead and wrap this one up now. Um, in one word, what is your, what is your definition of your fandom for the Philadelphia Eagles? One word. Ooh, one word. Um, Pragmatism. <laughs> okay. 
Okay. And that's because that's the one word I can think of that really means, yeah, I can call a spade a spade. I can look at this team, and I can take a deep breath, deep breath and go, yeah, I can wear my Eagle sweatshirt out in public when I know my team is going to be 4-12. and 12. That's pragmatic, you know? I don't have big hopes. I drive the dented car. My wife's a little overweight. I can deal with that, you know? I don't need everything to be perfect. Just as long as my booze is cheap and plentiful, I'm happy. That's pragmatism. I don't think that's what Webster says for pragmatism, but that's what I say, damn it. And it's our podcast, so I can make up any shit I want. Do you mean the dictionary or Emmanuel Lewis? Oh, wait. Is this a needless Alex Karras reference? <laughs> no, I, I uh, those, those references. Mongo only pawn in Game of Life. Yeah, okay. Oh, boy. Well, hey, this has been a really good time talking with you. Uh, definitely taking another uh, angle on the whole depression and sorrow and what it means to be a fan. And uh, definitely I would probably like to extend uh, the invitation out to anybody else that feels this passionate about their team. Uh, we would love to hear from you, I think. Oh, I, absolutely. In, in my opinion – I guess it's hard for me because I, you know, I we don't know most of the other tales of depression and sorrow, and we would like to hear it. Now, like if you're a Carolina Panthers fan, you don't have a lot to talk about because there's not a lot of history there. I mean, I'm not trying to like, you know, zero in on everything, but you know, if if you're a Detroit Lions fan and you're listening to this right now, call us, man. We're all ears. I want to hear it. I, I really. Well, and- um, because that's 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 what makes us fans. That's what makes us tune in. Uh, you know, it's like you were saying about the the Super Bowl. You know, for us, it's not the commercials. For us, it's it's it, it's the fandom. It's about the teams. It's about the city, for sure. Well, and here's and, if you if you got a good tale of of sorrow, first of all. We're not we're not discriminating. If you are a Panthers fan and you want to call us up and you want to talk about Jake fucking Delome, we're all ears. I mean, let's be honest. We're we're an unsupported podcast that let's you know we could use some content. You know, other than us, you know, we don't really have much. But if you want to get a hold of us, give us a shout. Um, you know, all of our stuff is available online. Dubsism.wordpress.com. Um, um, Mr. Meehan, you, you move around on the web more than, say, like people who live off cell phone cards. Uh, where, where can we find your stuff these days? Uh, well, first of all, I thought that was going to be a Kardashian reference. If uh, <laughs> by the Internet you meant black people. Um, oh, uh, oh, <laughs> It did not go there. Uh, no, my stuff can be found at uh, firstorderhistorians.com at the moment. I'm uh, rebranding another one of the sites that I'm working on right now, and it's kind of becoming a major pain in my ass, but that's where uh, you can find all the stuff at. Um, Right now we're looking at September 4th is the beginning of the season. So, you know, we're, we're, we're in the last week of July and then we got one more month and then we're both you and I are just really ready to hit it. Um, I I, I can't, I I can't wait. Uh, This whole, this hall of fame game uh, between, Giants and the Bills. I mean, the, the, there's a little bit of a, a belief that says the third preseason game is where they, you know, obviously leave the starters in a little bit longer and then see how it really is. 
that's right. never worked as a that's never worked as a methadone for me, ever. <laughs> um, it, it, it never has. I, I I've never honestly sat back and be like and been like, yeah, like this is it. Like it really starts September fourth, and that's you know that's that's what all this goes back to. And uh, you know, I I wish your Eagles the best of luck. Uh, this is the part where you would wish my Giants the best of luck. Uh, well, but, yeah, I mean, you know, I don't want to get into the whole Eli Manning thing and, you know, where my team's going. Let's let's talk about something positive. You brought up your rebranding um, first uh, first order historians. Are you still going to do the um, the comedian interviews you do over there? Because that's some funny shit. Yeah, yeah, I do. Uh, well, this is – it's uh, I'm, I'm kind of got an internship at uh, – uh, for a uh, heavy metal label, and I'm doing a lot of uh, inter- interviews through them. And uh, okay. the, uh, the, the this month is uh, we have a, uh, a a pretty busy schedule. We got a Dirty Rotten Imbeciles, Trail of Dead, and a Cannibal Corpse, which th- that interview is just fucking hilarious. Um, and that's <laughs> going on. That's that's going to be going on uh, here pretty soon. Um, and then, then usually I, I like to, you know, I, I, I've been trying to kind of splice the, the NFL stuff in there. It's just as a writer, and if you if you're hearing this, and you probably know exactly what I'm going to say, you get to this point in July where you just have like a draft folder full of, you know, either jokes or different things that you want to say about the league and it, it just gets to the point where you're just like, fuck, like I, I have to get this out. And uh, so I, I look forward to working with you during the year and seeing what happens. Uh, we talked about a lot of the NFL stuff uh, on the, on the last podcast, but uh, uh, the actual, the email address that you can get a hold of me at is uh, quad cities, professional at hotmail.com. Yours, I believe is, is it dubsism at yahoo.com? Dubsism at yahoo.com because it goes along with dubsism.wordpress.com. So uh, dubsism is the key if you're looking for me. Uh, so I think we'll bring this to uh, we'll bring this to a wrap. You got Ryan Meehan over at uh, First Order Historians. You got J Dub over at uh, Dubsism. Until next time, peace out. Hello?
Done.
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.